Well, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to John chapter 3. We'll be finishing up that chapter together today. And then we'll move right on to chapter 4 next week. Question for you as we get started this morning. Are you competitive? Uh, Maybe you're the kind of person or maybe you live with the kind of person who can turn everything into a competition. The reality is that for most of us, we like it when our team wins or we like to win. I am relatively competitive. I like to win. I, I, if I'm not competing against somebody else, then I find ways to compete against myself because I'm just driven in that way. I like to be on the win. So I know I saw in the church bulletin, it says it's just for fun, church softball league. And I hope we have fun, but I kind of hope we win too. Like to be like, I'm happier when I win. That's just, that's just the way it works if I'm being honest with you. So just for fun and more fun when we win league is what it's going to be. Uh, but in today's passage, we're going to be taken back to a character who we haven't seen since chapter 1. And that is John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist is different than the John who's authoring this gospel. And John the Baptist, we heard of in chapter 1 a lot, but we haven't heard of him since then. He was the one who was out in the countryside preaching to large crowds. Many people were coming to him, and he was baptizing them, preparing them. He, he made it clear, remember, from chapter 1. He made it clear, I'm not the Christ. Don't come thinking that I'm the Christ. I'm just preparing the way. Isaiah prophesied about a guy like me who would come and prepare the people for the Messiah who was to come. And when he saw Jesus in chapter 1, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when we pick it up here in chapter 3, we're going to see that some of John's followers must have been competitive types. And they like to win. And they used to, they were on John's team. And they saw all these people coming out to hear John and to be baptized by John. But now in chapter 3, we're going to see that many of them see that all the people that used to come to John are now going to Jesus. And they're concerned. They think that, well, we should be winning still. And so, John, you should be concerned or upset in some way about this. So they're going to come to him. And we're going to hear John's response to them. And that's going to give us an opportunity to see the contrast between John and Jesus and to ask ourselves some important questions, questions like these. Do I care more about what people think of me or what they think of Jesus? Let's think about that today. We're going to think about what makes me happy when I'm exalted or when Jesus is exalted. When I win... I love the example of John the Baptist, and I love the clarity of John chapter 3. And so we're going to look at the rest of it today, starting in verse 22 and going all the way to the end. There's such clarity in this passage. I want you to listen for the clarity about life and the clarity about eternal life, especially in the very last verse. So if you're able to, would you please stand as we read God's word together today. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. I'm going to pray first. Father, thank you for this gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We know that the way 
that you build up the churches by your spirit working through your word. And so I pray that the church would be built up now. I pray that the glory of the name of Jesus would be the passion of this church, not just collectively, but in individual lives, that you would make us into people who care more about what people think about Jesus than we care about what people think about us. Would you do that work in us even now? In Jesus' name, amen. God's word says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi! He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Be seated. So, as usual in the bulletin, uh, there is for you a spot to take some notes and some application questions. You can use those. Most life groups are not meeting right now, so those are great to use either on your own as you seek to, during the week, spend some time in God's Word, working to apply it to ourselves or in discussion uh, with friends or family. First point that we're looking at today covers the first nine verses, who will be exalted. First, it's really just kind of setting the scene for us. We don't know how much time elapsed between where we were at verse 21 and when verse 22 happens. It just says after this. John doesn't tell us how many days after this. But sometimes after his time in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples go out into the Judean countryside. That's where John had been, somewhere out in the Judean countryside as well. He was even further north most likely. But Jesus remains here with his disciples, and they're baptizing. And John was doing the same thing. I told you we're going to see a lot of comparison and contrast between John and Jesus here in this passage. We're already seeing it. There's baptism going on here, Jesus and his disciples. John is with some of his disciples, and they're baptizing in a different spot because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. And then there's this little kind of foreshadowing, uh, letting you know, John is going to be put in prison, and of course, this is all taking place before he's put in prison. 
And then John's disciples, who had been in discussion with a Jew, had came and were talking to him, and there was a discussion, there was a concern. It says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So then they come to John, and they have some questions they want to ask John. They're concerned about something, and they think that John should be concerned about it too. Like I mentioned, maybe they're competitive types like me. Because they come to John, and here again we see a comparison, because often the only person who's been called rabbi so far in, uh, in this book is Jesus. And now these guys are coming to John, who is their rabbi, who's their teacher, and they're calling him rabbi. And they say to him, rabbi, and they don't even use Jesus' name. They say, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, that's Jesus. Remember, there was a time when John the Baptist and Jesus were together, and they're saying, you remember that guy, the one to whom you bore witness, the one who was with you? Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So they're concerned. That's what they, of all the things they could come and talk to John about, what they bring to him and what John records for us is that they came to John the Baptist and saying, everybody's going to him. As though John should maybe be upset or concerned about that in some way, making clear that they didn't really understand why John the Baptist was here. But I love John's response, and this is where we have so much to learn. Maybe you just learned something as I was just reading it, but let's look at it a little more closely. Verses 27 to 30, it begins with this. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Now, that's a very broad, true statement, isn't it? Every, every good and perfect gift comes from above, is what it says in the book of James. But here, John is just saying, in response to their, well, everybody's going to him. He says, listen, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. I think in context, John is sharing with them, I'm content with what God has given me. Like, like you think, you think that maybe these people should be coming to me. You think I should kind of have this, this high position that I seemed to have just weeks ago when everybody was coming to me, and now you're concerned they're all going to him? Listen, everything I have comes from above. It's all a gift. I'm content with what God has given me right now. That's the way I'm seeing that as I try and understand John's answer in context. And then it gets even more clear. He says this in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness, like you guys, you were with me, that I said, remember this from chapter 1, right? I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John, this was his, his regular message. They had to have heard this probably more than once. His message to them is, I am not the Christ. I'm just sent before him. I'm just getting you all ready to meet Jesus. That's what I have been sent to do that's who I am. It's not about me. My job, my purpose is to point people to Jesus. That's what I'm here for. And then he's going to use an illustration. Because sometimes when people aren't really picking up what you're putting down, it's helpful to use an illustration. I can tell that sometimes when I'm preaching, I'll be saying something that's like, uh, and I usually can't come up with an illustration on the spot. And if I do, uh, I, I regret it sometimes later. Um, but John's illustration here is really good, really helpful. Um, where he's going to share an illustration uh, about a, a wedding and a groom. 
And so he says it in this way. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom. So now I think John is putting himself, I'm just like the friend of the bridegroom. We would call it like a best man in our day, right? <laughs> like, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, I read, you know, we kind of have this spot, I think, in, in a lot of weddings. People have like a personal attendant. That's usually the bride that has a personal attendant. Maybe there's a wedding coordinator who tries to get everything together. Oftentimes, I read in that culture, a person that would get a lot of the, the details for a wedding celebration put together was a friend of the groom. Okay? And so John is just saying here, listen, you've been to a wedding before, right? It's not all about the friend of the groom. The friend of the groom is just the guy that's getting stuff ready. And he gets to stand there and he gets to hear the voice of the groom. And he's excited about that. That's what he gets happy about. Like I had a best friend, we, Kirsten and I, when we got married, uh, almost, we're just a couple weeks away from uh, 17 years ago, we had a, a friend of mine who was the best man in my wedding. His name was Josh. Now, Josh, the friend in our wedding, thankfully recognized that that wedding, he was there to kind of be there to support Kirsten and I in this big day for us. And Josh, at no point, like he did his job well. He stood next to me. He had the rings in his pocket. He never said a word during the wedding when it was time to give the rings. He gave the rings to me or to the pastor or however that worked. I can't remember. Uh, and so he did that, and he was just there to support and encourage us. He didn't interrupt the wedding at some point and say, hey, Gene and Helen, those were the people who took our pictures, Gene and Helen, you've been taking so many pictures of Jeremy. What about me? Like he didn't do that because he recognized that he was there to support and to, 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 to do things for the groom and the bride. And so John is just recognizing this. Hey, I'm not, this is not about me. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. Preparing the bride to meet the groom. That's what I'm here for. And so he shares this with them. I love this. John knows his role. He knows it's not about him. He just stands. He hears. He rejoices greatly. And then he has this statement. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, you would think that John, a few weeks ago when everybody was coming to him, and he's successful and he's well-liked, that would have been John in his prime. This is John in his heyday. Everybody's coming to him. He's successful. He's well-liked. But when is John's joy complete? When he's just the silent, quiet one, and everybody's coming to Jesus now. That's what he's about. I love that. This is what makes his joy complete. And then we get verse 30. This is, this is the kind of stuff they make Christian t-shirts out of. Okay, He must increase, but I must decrease. I love that. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, John's desire is not to have his own reputation protected. That's what his followers are, are concerned about, it seems. But they're all going to him. John says, great. That's what makes me happy. That's what I'm here for. He needs to increase. I need to decrease. That's the way this is supposed to work. Jesus increases. Jesus is glorified. Jesus' name is magnified. People are impressed by Jesus. What needs to happen with John? Doesn't matter. 
I decrease, fewer people know my name, not as many people like me, I'm not looked at, at, at as successful, who cares? He must increase, I must decrease. Yesterday, Mariah and I went on a donut date, and uh, we went to Hy-Vee in the morning, and I got a maple bacon donut, I'd never tried that before, that's weird. Um, they put bacon on a donut, you like that? Uh, I'm not sure what I think yet. Uh, but anyway, um, we went there and we left, and it was light out already when we got there and when we left. But when we left, the first thing Mariah said when we got out in the parking lot, she said, I can see the moon. And she was right. You could look in the sky in the south and you could see the moon, very kind of dim at that point. I'm sure the evening before it might have been very bright. We know that the moon itself doesn't have light. It just reflects light, right? It's not a source of light. It's a reflection of light that we see on the moon. And, and i Trying to remember exactly, I wrote down a couple of things about our conversation. Um, but I said something about, yeah, but now the sun is up too, right? And Mariah's comment was this, yeah, and pretty soon we won't even see the moon because the sun is so bright. She nailed it. That's John's role. It's like, I'm just the moon. I'm not the light. That's what he said in, ver- in chapter 1. I'm not the light. The true light that comes into the world is still coming, right? And, and so his time, like it's daytime now. I did my thing where I reflected the light for a period of time, but now as the sun comes up and its brightness starts to just cover everything, we don't need the moon right now. That's fine that you don't see the moon. It's fine. The moon's still there. It's just fine that you don't see it. And that's how John is looking at his role. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so application, I think, is pretty simple for us. And I split it into two things because here's here's the reality. I think there's some of us who maybe like me, I'm in danger often of having high self-esteem. I like it when I'm successful and I like it when people like me. And so that can lead me to have an attitude that's very different than John's attitude here in John chapter 3. Maybe that's you as well. When people like you and you're successful, you're in danger of believing that it's all about you. See, because as fallen creatures, when we get a taste of notoriety, when we get a taste of like people liking us and people saying nice things about us and kind of flattering us with things, we get a taste of that, and naturally, we kind of want more. And suddenly, our desire for our own glory begins to grow and grow and grow. And we need this example of John the Baptist, to whom this was offered, but he said, no, he must increase and I must decrease. When people desire to exalt you because of your success, maybe your success in ministry, you're gifted in ministry, maybe it's because of your success at your job, maybe it's because of your success in parenting, and people want to exalt you, are you ready to quickly, like John, figure out a way to shine the spotlight on Jesus? And once we taste it, it tastes good and we desire it. We need to recognize that. So if people like you and you're relatively successful, be careful. Because your sinful nature will try and tell you it's all about you. Ask God, give me a heart like that of John the Baptist, who does not get concerned about that, but instead says he must increase and I must decrease. But there's also a danger for those of you who feel the other way. 
for those of you who battle insecurity, for those of you who feel like, I'm just never sure what people think of me, and those of you who compare yourself to other people, and instead of seeing seeing yourself as, as somebody of worth and value, you compare yourself to other people and you think, I'm just never going to measure up. There's always somebody better at this and better at that. And you battle low self-esteem. You too are in danger of making it all about you. Because as you fight that battle, your thoughts so often do not go to what do people think about Jesus. Your thoughts are still going to. It's kind of like an upside down kind of pride. But your thoughts are still consumed with what do people think about me. Do I measure up? Out of our insecurity, we can also turn inward and just be concerned mostly about ourselves and what people are thinking about us. And we, too, need to ask God to give us the heart of John the Baptist who can say, it doesn't matter all that much to me what other people think of me. It doesn't matter if my joy is complete when people think much of Jesus. To ask God to give us that kind of attitude because it's true that there is great joy when it's about Jesus and not about me. So those questions I asked at the beginning, do I care more about what people think of me or what they think of Jesus? These would be good questions for us to reflect on during the week. Do I care more about what people think of me? And you don't have to be a prideful, arrogant. You can be very insecure and think this same thing. We can, we can think a lot about what people think of us. And ask ourselves the question, do I care more what people think about me or what they think about Jesus? That's a good question to ask, and so is this one. What makes me happy when I'm exalted or when Jesus is exalted? What makes me happy? For John, his joy was complete when he decreased and Jesus increased. What makes me happy when everything's going swimmingly in my life? When all is well and life is peachy for me? Or am I happy regardless of my circumstances when I see Jesus being exalted? Good questions to ask ourselves this week. So let's look at the second half of this passage. We move on starting in verse 23 where we're going to have to ask ourselves the question, how do you respond to the one who is above all? Now again, in Greek, That was the original language that John wrote in. We don't have quotation marks, so we're not sure, but most people assume that this is the end of John the Baptist's testimony here. This line, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's John the Baptist's testimony, and that's the last line of it. And now we're moving on to comments of John, the author of the gospel. We don't know that for sure, but a number of different things seem to point in that direction. Again, regardless of who's saying this, this is true. The Holy Spirit's inspiring the author to write these very words. And here's the words. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Again, he who comes from heaven is above all. So we're told right there in verse 31 that Jesus is the one who comes from above. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the Word of God, chapter 1, referred to Him as the one by whom all things were made. Everything came into existence through Him. And here He is, Jesus, who has now come from above or from heaven. And even though He has descended and He has taken on human flesh and He's fully human, He is still above all. 
Okay? And so he is above all. Those of us who are of the earth, we belong to the earth and speak in an earthly way, but Jesus is different from us. So again, a contrast between, first we saw a contrast between John the Baptist and, and, and Jesus, now a contrast between every one of us and Jesus. Jesus comes from above, and he is above all. He's eternal, he's supreme. You go on to verse 32, and that affects the way he talks, right? So if you go on to verses 32 and following, you'll read this. He, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So I think he's kind of being using some hyperbole when saying no one receives his testimony. That's what it feels like sometimes, as though no one's receiving, because the very next verse he says, whoever receives his testimony. So some who hear what Jesus has to say believe it, but many are rejecting it. And when you're believing it, you're saying God is true, which implies that whoever does not believe Jesus' testimony is believing that God isn't telling the truth. Why is that? Because of verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. When Jesus is speaking, Jesus is God, and Jesus is speaking the word of God. And so to reject Jesus' testimony is to reject Jesus, is to reject God. Everything hinges on him, which we're going to see here in a moment. It also tells us here, and we're going to learn a lot more about this later on in John, Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. He gives it even without measure. I'm reading through the Old Testament, uh, through well, both Old and New right now. But I'm at a spot in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel where you see over and over again the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Saul and the Spirit of the Lord rushes on David. And so the Spirit of, Lord, of the Lord comes in certain times and to certain people for certain purposes, but Jesus comes and he is to give the Spirit without measure, which we'll see more clearly in the book of Acts. But then we get to the last two verses. This is where I want to spend some time and do some application. Verses 35 and 36 tells us that Jesus has been given all authority and everything hinges on him. I never noticed this before, but in studying this passage this week, I thought of this. Here's verse 35. Read it. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Have we seen yet in chapter 3 the Father loving and giving? Remember that from last week, John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? We read that last week. Now we have the father loving the son and giving all things to the son. Giving all things into his hand. So last week we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And now this week, the Father loves the Son and gives all things to the Son. Right? We see that love gives. That's certainly one thing we saw last week, and we see it again this week. Father loves the Son has given all things into his hand. Jesus has all authority. Everything is going to hinge on him, which again makes verse 36 then a great conclusion to this chapter. Verse 36, I've repeated this many times, never preached on it, but repeated this many times in conclusion to a sermon because I want to make things clear. And I think John 3.36 makes things abundantly clear. 
because all authority has been given to Jesus, because Jesus is God. Everything hinges on him. How do you respond to the one who is above all? Verse 36 puts it this way. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is not new, and it's not going to be the last time we hear it in John's Gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Our eternal destiny depends on our response to Jesus. John's making this very clear. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Sounds like John 3.16, right? Whoever believes in Him has eternal life. Read that here. But then there's a contrast. And the verse ends this way. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remember last week we saw how all of us coming into the world as sinners are under the condemnation of God. Now we read here also that we're under the wrath of God. This is how we come into the world. And so the wrath of God on us, the wrath of God remains on us unless we believe in the Son. Now, I want you to note one other thing here. Because anytime you you maybe have one expectation, you see something different, it's good to ask some questions. Interesting, isn't it? What would you expect when he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, if he's going to contrast that with something else, you would expect him to say, whoever does not believe in the Son does not have eternal life. Right? But what does he say? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Interesting contrast, isn't it? And I think simply he's getting at, because we'll see this in other spots in the Gospels and all throughout Scripture, really, those who truly believe are those who seek to obey. Right? Jesus will say, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Right? Those who truly believe are those who seek to obey. And so if somebody is not obeying Jesus in any way, that's a pretty good indication that that person does not truly believe in Jesus. And therefore that person will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I love how clear John 3.36 makes it. That this is the most important choice we all face in life. Is how do you respond to Jesus, the one who is above all? Do you choose to believe in the one? And if you choose to believe in this one who's above all, to believe in the Son, then you have eternal life. If you do not believe in Him and you do not obey Him, then the wrath of God remains on you and you will not see eternal life. So, application. I want to be really clear because I think John is really clear. And let me be clear by saying this. I could be doing your funeral next week. I have not done many funerals at all in my time as pastor here. I've been here over five years, and I think I've done less than five funerals. But I could be doing yours next week, and that's true even if you're only 20-something, right? And so the biggest question that you have to ask yourself is, will I be with Jesus? Will I be with Jesus? Because John 3.36, among many other passages, makes it quite clear You will either receive eternal life or you will suffer under the just wrath of God. That's the only options available to us upon our death. 
And so I just took this from our E3 statement of faith, which I think is helpful. And one of the reasons I like being a part of this denomination who doesn't shy away from saying, here's what Scripture says, so here's what we believe. This is the last article of our 10-article statement of faith. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. That's what we believe. And so it it becomes, I think, really personal when we ask the question, I could be doing your funeral next week. Where will you be? For many of you, uh, you will die. I'll meet with your family shortly after your death, probably, as they cry and they begin the process of grieving. I may go with them to meet with the funeral director. I might be the one to preach at your funeral. I'd ask you this question. Is there strong evidence in your life, that leads your family to conclude that you, without a doubt, upon your death, will be with Jesus because you believe in Jesus as evidenced by a life of repentance and obedience to him? Or will they have some doubt? It's a question I want you to wrestle with a bit. I thought about this more this week as I was reading. I'm reading this It's one of the best books I've ever read, a book by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. It's probably about 100 years old, Um, but a great book. And in there, he he says it this way. When we have carried you to your narrow bed, let us not have to hunt up stray words and scraps of religion in order to make out that you were a true believer. But let us be able to speak decidedly as to your condition. Let us have some solid proof of your repentance, your faith, and your holiness, so that none shall be able for a moment to question your state. This is life and death kind of stuff. Oh, church, that you, individually, all of us, would believe in such a way that leaves no doubt in our family's mind that when we die, we will be with Jesus. That we would believe and live in such a way that I can stand up at your funeral with great confidence, preaching the gospel, knowing that as we are gathered together in grief, that you are gathered together with saints around the throne of Jesus in eternal blessedness and joy forever with him. If you are unsure of where you stand with Jesus, it's not the kind of question that you want to put off until maybe some other time. Got other things on my calendar, got other things I'm dealing with. I'd love to talk with you more about that. I'd encourage you to even come and talk to me before you leave the building today. And for all of us who are in Christ, we now have the great privilege of taking the Lord's Supper together. We do this once a month, and it's a reminder for us that the reward of eternal life is not something that we earned by our own works, 
but it's something that is freely given to all who trust in Jesus by God's grace, through faith, through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And so we need that reminder. Jesus commanded us to do this in remembrance of him, and so we're going to do that now. So 